Great to be with you this morning. Uh, we are uh, continuing in our series called A Witness. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 14, uh, verse 1, and we'll pick up there in a moment as we continue to examine what it looks like to be Jesus' witnesses in the world, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And specifically, uh, we are examining unique opportunities and unique obstacles to being witnesses in our post-Christian culture. As we pick up in John 14, it is the final night of Jesus' life, earthly life and ministry. He will be crucified the following morning, and he gives his disciples some parting words uh, before he goes. He speaks to them plainly about what's going to happen and preparing them for the cross, the resurrection, and even uh, their own afterlife, which is to come after their death. This is what he says, John chapter 14. We're picking up in verse 1. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Jesus, as we continue to uh, contemplate, study, examine, be students of uh, the culture that we live in, I pray that you would meet us here this morning, Jesus, and empower us in your spirit for the purpose of witness. Uh, we love experiencing your presence for your presence's sake. There's that, that's a good, healthy thing, but we also want to be filled with your presence, filled with your spirit for the sake of the lost, for the sake of uh, a culture uh, that is beginning to come apart at the seams. Lord, would you uh, fill us, would you open our eyes um, and free us, Lord, would you free us from unnecessary fear that we're carrying? I think of the scripture that says, perfect love casts out fear. And so we invite your perfect love into this place this morning as we continue to follow after you as best we know how. In Jesus' name, amen. If you rewind the clock to the ancient Greek and Roman world, what you will find is an amazing amount of religious tolerance. Uh, the Romans, though they waged war and politically dominated the entire known world, uh, actually had no desire to wage war against the gods and goddesses of the ancient world. So as the Roman Empire uh, spread across the known world, they're constantly coming into contact with new people and new people groups uh, who are bound together in the worship uh, of a god or, or goddess. 
uh, or in some cases, multiple of them. And as they uh, came into, in, into contact with these people groups who are marked by worship of a certain god or goddess, uh, the standard Roman practice was just to incorporate the new god or goddess into the pantheon of the gods. So they would say, oh, wow, you worship uh, Artemis or Baal or whoever it is. Well, either you've been worshiping one of the Roman gods and goddesses under a different name, and we just have to change the name uh, in order to bring you in, or you are worshiping a brand new god or goddess that we didn't know about, which is no problem at all. We'll just add you in to the pantheon. Come, come along and join us. Uh, in terms of religious history, uh, Rome was said to have been started when Numa, uh, the first sort of uh, emperor leader of Rome, made a contract with Jupiter, who was then worshipped as the supreme god above all the other gods. And the deal was that the gods and goddesses would look after Rome's protection and expansion, and in exchange, the Roman emperor, the Roman government, uh, and by direction, the Roman people would worship those gods and bring regular sacrifices uh, honoring them. Uh, and so ancient Rome became this uh, fascinating place in which there was no limit as to how many uh, gods or goddesses you could worship. Um, and and yet there was a state religion which held a certain uh, pantheon and they expected everyone in the empire uh, to worship the gods and goddesses in that pantheon in addition to whatever else they were worshiping. So there's a state religion which everyone was expected to observe. Um, as part of that, you had to acknowledge uh, the divinity of the emperor and and. Some people took that seriously and some people didn't, but everyone had to acknowledge that the emperor was a son of the gods. Um, you had to make regular sacrifices and uh, pay homage to the pantheon, and the security of the state was thought to have depended on it. It, it was the glue that held their society together. It was what defined them. And the government didn't care if you actually believed in the state religion or not which is hard for us to wrap our minds around. They really didn't care. As long as you went through the motions, as long as you made the right sacrifices and paid homage to the right gods, uh, because it was a matter of national security and, ma and national unity that you would do that. Uh, beyond the state pantheon, in sort of private practice, there was, all, there was tons of different cults that were operating in uh, the ancient world, and they were often very enthusiastic in their worship and often very extreme in sort of their initiation rites uh, into that cult, which is often somewhat secretive, met in private. So there was all of this worship of different deities through cults outside of the state religion. But again, the government didn't care so long as you agreed to worship the gods and goddesses in the pantheon. No one in the ancient world, not even in the private cults, claimed or demanded exclusive worship of their deity. Nobody. Everyone across the ancient world said you could worship as many gods or goddesses as you wanted. You could be as in, in as many different private cults as you wanted. In all things spiritual, the attitude was the more, the merrier. So there was this incredible um, tolerance and uh, syncretism across all the ancient religions. 
Then you had Israel, which was followed by Christianity. And this was a movement that the Romans had no category for. It was bizarre. To begin with, they only had one God who they claimed was the maker of heaven and earth. But the odd thing was that they refused to allow their God to be added to the pantheon. They said, no, our God is not Jupiter, supreme God over the gods. And no, you cannot add our God into your pantheon. And strangest of all, they said, if you accept our religion, and you should, then you must forsake all other gods and goddesses as you convert to our religion. And all of this might sound somewhat commonplace in our day and age, but you have to understand that conversion itself was a foreign concept in the ancient world. It, it wasn't a thing. It, it, didn't, it didn't make sense. Wait, why would you do that? Why would I need to forsake all other gods? Uh, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we honor one another and enjoy unity as we honor one another's gods? Like, what's wrong with all of that? But these uh, early Christians were insistent on this issue. You must deny all other gods and goddesses. You cannot make sacrifices in the state religious system, regardless of what you believe in your heart. And you cannot acknowledge the emperor as divine. And, and this was infuriating to the ancient Roman government. They said, we've been so tolerant. <laughs> we've been so accommodating. And here you are undermining our efforts. You are spitting in the face of the Roman government. You are undermining the sort of uh, tolerant, synchronized utopia which we are trying to build. Uh, you, you are a threat to the state and, and, and our national security. You're a threat to the social fabric and, and the unity which we enjoy, the stability of the ancient world. And therefore, this cult must be eliminated. And, and the Christians were intensely persecuted for this very reason. The early Christians were actually labeled as atheists because of this stance that they took. Uh, they were labeled as antagonizers, enemies of the state, because of their refusal to compromise or, or to syncretize with the other religions. Uh, they would not engage in pluralism or add their God to the pantheon. If they had, the Romans would have had a completely different outlook on the, the practice of Christianity. Uh, they wouldn't have persecuted it. They would have just said, great, we'll add you in, you do your thing, and we're going to do ours. They would have been embraced by Rome. Instead, they were persecuted, sought out, stripped of their possessions, tortured, executed in public. Why? because they believed that their God was the true God of the universe and that he alone was worthy of worship. They believed that Jesus was absolutely crucial, necessary for the salvation of humanity. And, and they operated with a sense of urgency. Every single man, woman, and child needs to know him. 
This is the key to eternal life, which humanity in all of its different ways was searching for. And there is no other. No one else can save you from your sin. There's no private cult. There's no state religion. There's, there's no other deity in, in the entire universe that can save you from your sin. No one else offers true cleansing, which is actually a theme in the private religious cults. No one else offers true cleansing. No one else offers rebirth and new creation. No one else has actually conquered Satan's sin and death. No one else can offer you resurrection and eternal life. And hence the spread of Christianity marked incredible freedom and hope for the Roman Empire and... In the same breath, it was the death of paganism. It was the death of pluralism. It it was the death of their vision for for a, a syncretized society. Because the early church preached a message that was both radically inclusive and radically exclusive at the same time. It was radically inclusive because they said every single man, woman, and child on earth can come into the kingdom. They claimed that Jesus had done everything to open the way for eternal life, that all we needed to do was to say yes to him. It was for everyone, Jew and Gentile, every religious background, men, women, children, slave and free, every education level, every class, every citizenship, it was for everyone. And and this made it radically inclusive. If you're a human being, you're in. But it was also strangely exclusive in, in that it said all people can come, but all of your gods are excluded. You have to reject them. You have to check them at the door. So as a culture goes from pre-Christian to Christian, it is the death of syncretism, it is the death of pluralism, it is the death of the pantheon. But at the same time, it often spawns a new syncretism, a new pluralism on the other side of Christianity in post-Christian culture. Uh, and it's not the pagan pluralism that you see in the ancient world in the classic Roman sense. It's, it's something new. It's something different. Uh, and we can see this from the story of our nation. Uh, we'll be ready for that in a little bit. But uh, if you think about our country, uh, America was started as a religious pilgrims, Uh, mostly Protestant, were fleeing persecution in England. And they arrived on a new continent, which would have been a pre-Christian or pagan. Uh, So you have the Native Americans, many of whom had been worshiping different uh, spirits and little g gods uh, for centuries, if not millennia. And you have that culture then uh, colliding with the pilgrims who are uh, coming off those first boats carrying the truth of Christ and a call to come and worship him. And so you can see in that moment, as as the first sort of seed of our nation was planted, you can see two things happening at the same time. Uh, First, you can see uh, sort of the the death of paganism on the one hand and, and the worshiping of the spirits 
that begins to fade into history, uh, while at the very same moment, you have a group of people who were sick of being persecuted uh, for their religion, and they were determined to start a new country uh, which enjoyed freedom of religion. So if you go back and look at our Constitution and the separation of church and state and the freedom of religion, all of that stuff, all of that language was an attempt to get away from a state-controlled, top-down religion, which is what they were fleeing from. We don't want the state to tell its citizens who and what to worship. It's up to the individual and the the individual human heart. Let us worship who or what we want. Uh, It actually wasn't to protect the government from religion, as many people are claiming today. It was the opposite. It, It was an attempt to protect religion from the government. And that's fantastic. It's great. A state run religion let's be honest, would be terrible. None of us want that. But what this does is that it leaves the door open for a new pluralism on the other side of Christianity, uh, for a new syncretism. Because with freedom of religion, then comes a variety of religions and and a desire innately to sort of reconcile those religions. Uh, and, And so now we have Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and, of course, many others as well, all operating side by side uh, in the same context. And the question becomes, in sort of a Christian, but in particular in a post-Christian culture, uh, we sort of ask, hey, how do we reconcile them all? What do we do? How do we fit all of these together? How do we relieve the tension that seems to exist between them? And so within post-Christian culture, we've come up with all sorts of theories as to how we might reconcile those. You can throw that slide up. Uh, First off, you have universalism, which says basically, if there is a God, then we'll all make it home eventually, uh, regardless of who we are or what we do or what we believe. Just as a matter of being born human, somehow we'll all just get there. Essentially, if there is a heaven, we'll all go. Then you have uh, pluralism, which says, no, you have to take a path to reach the divine. It's not automatic. And each religion, religion is its own path, but they're all headed up the same mountain toward God. And you can, if you want, you can take the Jesus path. That's fine. You'll totally get there. But you could also take the Buddhist path or the Hindu path, and arrive at the top of the same divine mountain. Essentially, all religions are headed in the same direction. You have to take a path, but all paths lead to the same destination. Then, as a separate phenomenon, you have syncretism, which says, hey, take the best parts from every religion and combine them all. Uh, Take the best parts and chuck the rest. Sort of make up your own uh, hybrid spirituality. So we might take uh, the teachings of Jesus on uh, love combined with the practices of uh, Zen Buddhism and meditation combined with the practice um, or with some of the teachings of Hinduism 
on sort of human nature and inner freedom combined with some of the poetry of Islam. And we'll kind of take our favorite parts from different religious traditions and kind of patch them together into our own new syncretized hybrid religion that we can follow. Take the, the best and chuck the rest. And all of these views sort of operate with this backdrop uh, of uh, relativism or tolerance. This sort of mentality uh, sits behind all of them. Uh, this is the mentality behind the coexist bumper stickers uh, that have been very popular over the last decade or so, which kind of picture all the religions uh, side by side, all operating together. Nobody's in conflict. Uh, everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. Uh, no one's asserting themselves over another. No one's claiming exclusive truth. Everyone just kind of gets to go and do their thing. Which, by the way, I think that bumper sticker is actually offensive to almost every tradition listed on the bumper sticker. Uh, we don't really like to talk about that. Uh, but uh, relativism says your truth is your truth. Uh, and whatever works for you is great. It goes hand in hand with the rampant individualism that's alive and well in our culture that just says you do you. If it works for you, then that's awesome. But no one should challenge you in that, and no one should tell you that you're wrong. Everything is relative. There is no objective right or wrong. Just choose whatever religion you want or no religion at all. Uh, as long as it sort of makes you a better person, makes you a more tolerant person, then that's great. But if your religious tradition actually makes you a less tolerant person, or, or puts you in tension with other people, well then by our cultural definition, it's actually making you a worse person and you and that religion should go away. But notice how eerily similar this is uh, to the ancient Greek and Roman world. They said all the same things. Go and, and worship whoever or whatever you want but don't tell anyone else that they're wrong. Don't challenge anyone else in their worship or worldview. Don't rain on our cultural parade. Don't threaten the new unity we are trying to cultivate through relativism and syncretism and pluralism. It's the exact same critique being leveled today as was in the Greek and Roman world. Exclusivity is the enemy. Don't be dogmatic. Don't stand on a truth that isn't relative. Uh, to call someone to change their worldview and convert to yours in, in a subtle way is now seen as being a repressive, bigoted, mean, closed-minded, imperialistic. Don't tell someone else that they're wrong, that their religious worldview is wrong. Don't tell anyone else how to live their life. And this is the mentality that I was raised in. Your truth is your truth. Don't talk about religion or your spiritual beliefs. That is a private matter. That is not a public matter. Don't challenge anyone else in what they believe in their faith system, whether it's atheism or anything else. It's very taboo in our moment of relativism and tolerance. And yet, that's exactly what the early church did 
And it's exactly what we are called to do as witnesses of Jesus and his kingdom. Is it popular? Goodness, no. It was terribly unpopular in the ancient world. Unheard of. And it's unpopular today. For years, I was afraid to talk about Jesus or share my faith. For this reason. Because I was trained in this worldview of tolerance and relativism. Keep it to yourself. If it works for you, then great. But don't share with others. And for goodness sake, don't claim exclusive truth. That's antithetical to the inclusive uh, utopia that we are trying to build. There's an allergic reaction against. And even when I finally overcame the, the fear of man or the fear of others and started sharing my faith, there, there was tremendous pushback for this reason. I've been mocked, made fun of, told to pass the Kool-Aid, as if I'm a part of some sort of cult. I've been accused of being outdated and bigoted. I've been misunderstood. I've lost secular friends over that. Hey, haven't we transcended all that outdated, bigoted, exclusive stuff? Haven't we moved past it all? Aren't we in a new, modern, open-minded era of syncretism and enlightenment? Don't we know how to take the best and chuck the rest? And yet in the midst of this moment, we are called to witness boldly about the reality of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Even if it's offensive. Even if it's unpopular. Even if it, it grinds against syncretism and pluralism in our fiercely independent society. Still, we must witness. Because in all reality... There are not many paths up the same mountain. There is one mountain of God, and God came down the mountain to meet with us. We have the best news in the world. Every other religious tradition says, here's the path, climb the mountain, do your best. Not so with us. We share a radically different message that the world desperately needs to hear. No other, no other religion speaks of a God who has come to us and sacrificed himself personally to take care of our sin. No other religion offers grace over legalism and personal striving. Only in Scripture do we see the God who came down the mountain to meet with us. Only in Jesus do we come face to face with the one who is the way, who is the truth, 
who is the life, incarnated in a human by flesh and blood, he can say, I am the way. I am the life. We don't don't need a way to the way. He, He is the way. And He has come to meet with us. No one else has conquered sin, has conquered death, and now holds the power to resurrect us from the dead. There is no other. May we be those who are willing to witness, who have the courage to speak the truth right in the midst of our pluralistic society. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for the incredible privilege that it is to be alive in this time, place, and culture. With all of its layers of difficulty and tension, with all of its uh, cultural resistance and its cultural need, Lord, I thank you that you... Um, knit us together in the womb that you've called us, um, that you've created us for this time, place, and culture. And Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth to power, to operate in, in your love and your grace and your truth to speak of this message um, that's sort of dismissed out of hand. Um, Most people think they don't need the gospel and most people actually don't know the gospel at all. And so we find ourselves, like the early church, uh, in a place of tension. Um, I I think it seems clear from history that they actually were, were facing similar tensions. It was just louder in the first century than it is now. And so I pray that we would be able to look back and take heart from countless thousands, millions of people who have given their lives, who would rather be put to death than give you up, who would rather be put to death than than syncretize and pluralize and compromise because they know who you are. Lord, may we be those who stand in solidarity with millions of our brothers and sisters throughout history who saw the tension who counted the cost, and who followed you anyways. I think of uh, Paul's prayer in Ephesians 6. He says, pray for me also. He wrote half of scripture. He says, pray for me also, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And Lord, if Paul needed people to pray that over him, then we need that prayed over us too. And so I pray that now.
we wait on you, Lord, as we head into worship, as we seek you, as we celebrate you, our prayer is simple, that you would give us power, that you would give us courage, that you would give us fortitude, that you would give us integrity, that we might fearlessly make known the gospel, as we should, Lord. And we want to do it in your timing. We're not looking to do something forced or, or, or awkward or alienating. May it be in your timing, Lord. But when your timing comes, may, may your spirit be dwelling in us. May your courage be running through our veins. That we might, we might proclaim it fearlessly, Paul says, as we should. Come and meet with us now, Jesus. Fill us with your spirit afresh so that we might witness boldly to the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.